0: It has been a busy week for Jesus. He's been baptized by John and received the Holy Spirit. He's recruited disciples, and now he's come back to Galilee, ready to begin his ministry of teaching and healing. And the first thing that he does is go to a party. Along with his mother and all of his disciples, Jesus goes to a party, a wedding feast in the little town of Canaan. We don't know who got married or how they knew Jesus and his mother and all his disciples, but in the long run, that really doesn't matter. They were there, and they were enjoying themselves, eating and drinking, talking and laughing along with all the other guests and the newlywed couple. It was an ordinary wedding feast for an ordinary couple in the ordinary town in Galilee, until one of the worst things that can happen at a feast happened. They ran out of wine. Now, you know as well as I that running out of refreshments at a party is an embarrassing situation in any case, but this was worse. You see, in those days, instead of going on a honeymoon, the newlyweds would celebrate by holding a days-long wedding feast. Imagine the joy and excitement of such an event. The entire town would have been invited, and running out of wine would have been a serious faux pas, not to mention the fact that there was not a lot of clean drinking water and they lived in a warm climate. With nothing with which to quench thirst or to toast the happy couple, not only would the feast come to a premature end, but such a breach in hospitality would bring great shame on the wedding hosts. Somehow the mother of Jesus, who is never named in this gospel, but we know her as Mary, becomes aware of the situation And when she does, she is determined to do something about it. And I can totally relate to this, totally. If I were a guest at that wedding and I knew something was wrong, I would want to help too. I have to admit that I can also relate to the way she interacts with her son. She never uh, tells him that he should do something directly. She just comments, they have no wine. But I can imagine the look, not only when she says that, but the look that she gives to Jesus when he responds to her expression of concern with something like, oh, Mom, that's their problem. They probably should have hired a better wedding planner. Now, it's okay to laugh. It's funny. (laughs) But as humorous as this exchange is, Jesus is not just being cheeky. Instead, he is vitally aware of the claim that God has on his life. My hour has not yet come, he tells his mother. In John's gospel, the word hour, when Jesus uses it, is a kind of shorthand for the event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And when Jesus says that, he is letting his mother know that he intends not to be guided by human authority, but by God. His mother, however, will not be put off. And it seems to me that in this moment, she acts as a catalyst, encouraging, nudging, prodding Jesus to accept his God-given authority and to take up the work to which he has been called. Somehow she knows that Jesus has the power to do what is needed. And when Jesus says, but mom, it's not my time, she says, yes, it is. But notice that she doesn't tell him what to do. Having expressed the need, she instructs the servants to follow his instructions and then steps back, confident that he will do what is best. What follows is what one commentator calls Jesus' most understated miracle. Six large stone jars are nearby, ready to be filled with water for what John calls the Jewish purification rites, perhaps for the ritual washing of hands before a meal. Jesus very simply and quietly tells the servants, fill the jars with water and then instructs them to draw some out and take it to the steward who's in charge of the feast. The steward is astonished at the richness of the wine and very puzzled that the bridegroom was served such good wine after the guests have already drunk so much that they couldn't care what kind of wine was served. He has no idea where the wine came from. The servants, on the other hand, know what has happened and who made it happen, and I can imagine their curiosity as they fill the jars to the brim with water and their amazement as they carry some of the water now turned to wine to the steward. But there is no indication that this incident has any lasting effect on their lives It is the disciples who see what Jesus has done and recognize what it means. This miracle, this sign as John calls it, opens the eyes of the disciples' hearts. And in that moment, Jesus was revealed to them in the light of his glory. And they believed in, or as a more accurate translation of the Greek puts it, they believed into him putting their whole trust in the man whom they had chosen to follow. So how exactly did this act reveal Jesus' glory? I think maybe it points to more than Jesus was a good guy to have at a party, something more than that. We learn in the Old Testament that plentiful wine was a symbol of the new age that God would one day inaugurate, an age of peace and prosperity. Amos nine thirteen through 15 reads, The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of the grapes, the one who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Jesus' act of changing water into wine points to that time when God will fulfill God's promises. It also serves to demonstrate Jesus' authority and power as the Son of God who offers new life to those who believe in him. But more than that, I think Jesus' act reveals the glory of God's abundant grace. And I do mean abundant. We are told that the six stone jars were huge, each one of them holding 20 to 30 gallons of water, which means that Jesus made 120 to 180 gallons of wine, almost a 1,000 bottles worth of the best wine ever served. What a blessing that newlywed couple had. And that is what grace looks like smells like, tastes like, overflowing blessing and joy. David Lose notes that so often we think of God's grace as taking away something, as taking away our sins, and that certainly is an important aspect of grace. But too often, David writes, we've, spoke, we've spoken of forgiveness as the only element of grace, as if Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were kind of a divine whiteout for the check marks against us on St. Peter's ledger. Which is why, he continues, I'm grateful for John to remind us that grace isn't only about making up for something we lack, but also providing more than we ever imagine or deserve. I mean, Jesus could have provided just enough wine for the party to go on, and given that people had already been drinking a few days, even a pedestrian bottle would have been gratefully received. But he went way, way beyond expectations to provide more and better wine than they ever could have expected. Likewise, Bruce Epperly points out that On that particular day, Jesus' calling was to bring joy to a couple and their family. There was no need that day for preaching, admonition, prophetic challenge, or healing touch. The need was for good wine and plenty of it. And by this act, Jesus reveals a God who not only seeks to bring us into line with God's ways, but also celebrates with us and gives us joy. Now, this does not mean that we are all supposed to go out and buy wine and have a big party, although I'm not gonna tell you what to do. Um, But it does encourage us to look for the signs of God's presence that bring us joy. How and when and where have you seen God's glory revealed? You know, much of the time we're kind of like the steward who could not see what was right in front of him, or the servants who saw what happened but failed to recognize its significance. This story dares us, calls us to open our eyes and minds and hearts to the grace and glory that is all around us. In the beauty of nature, in the faces of children, in loving relationships, in joyful celebrations, and in acts of care and compassion. And in this very room. it helps me to realize that we too can act as signs revealing to others the grace and glory of god when we respond to the needs of others when we rejoice with others when we reach out in compassion to offer care or to encourage hope when we stand up for what is right when we give abundantly and love extravagantly we are acting as bearers of god's glory the glory that is in us all it also occurs to me that the glory within us may be revealed only when like jesus mother another recognizes it and encourages, guides and sometimes pushes us to see it for ourselves This weekend we remember and give thanks for the life of one man who did just that. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. encouraged his people to look for the goodness in each person, even those who hated them, and to respond to hatred with love. Through his words and works, Dr. King changed the water of hatred into the wine of love And revealed God's grace and glory the grace that is for indeed all of us as you ponder that as you think on how God's glory is in the faces of those around you as you think about how you might actually act as one who reveals that glory I invite you now to join me in singing a hymn in Dr. King's honor. While Lift Every Voice and Sing, which you'll find on page 519 in the red hymnal, has been called the Black National Anthem, it is a song that speaks to the struggles and triumphs of every human being. Let us sing it, trusting in the grace that is poured out on all of us through Christ.